invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to begin in verse 29, and we're going to read down to the end of chapter 13 to verse 13. So we're reading 1 Corinthians 12, 29 to chapter 13, verse 13 this morning. And before we do read God's word, let's take a moment and pray and ask him to bless his word. We don't want to do this in human strength, so we go to him this morning believing that the Lord has to build the house and bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do in sincerity lift up our voices to you and pray that our prayers would ascend as incense before your throne. And we ask, Lord, that you would um, send that covenantal blessing on the preaching of your word this morning that you have promised to do. You have said that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You have told us that, that you have given your word, that you send it out to heal your people, that every word that you have spoken is breathed out by you and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And our God, we pray that you would send forth your word with great clarity and with the accompanying of the Holy Spirit with great power, that we would not know just the word of the gospel, but the power. We pray, our God, that you would move and not only shake earth, but shake heaven and earth as you have said you would, and that you would speak, Lord Jesus, and that we would hear you as our good shepherd and follow you. Bless, we pray, for we ask these things in your name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 29, and again... This is picking up on where we left off last week, talking about spiritual gifts. The apostle leaves off there and says, Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. Yet I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. Or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect or the whole comes, the complete, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. 
Well, in 1738, uh, Jonathan Edwards had just led the congregation of Northampton uh, in, in a building project. They had just completed their building, and as you all who have been in churches that have gone through building projects know, building projects can, can weigh heavily on a congregation. And so, while I'm not a historian, I'm going to make a speculation that Jonathan Edwards preached 16 sermons that became his great book called Charity and Its Fruits, Love and Its Fruits, because the congregation had just had the strain of a building project. I think that's a good pastor. He knows just what the people need to hear. And that book, Charity and Its Fruits, has become one of the most loved and meaningful and significant volumes in the history of Christian writings, specifically because what Edwards does is he takes 1 Corinthians 13 and he drains all of the juice out of the orange, as it were. And he talks about how what most Christians lack the most and what is the most excellent of all the graces in the Christian life is love. Love. Now, let me say this at the outset. Um, Gordon Fee has said these, these words. The love affair with this love chapter has allowed it to be read regularly apart from its context, which does not make it less true but causes one to miss too much. What Fee is saying is that at every wedding, at all kinds of even secular occasions, the first couple of verses of 1 Corinthians 13 are read, and these are some of the most well-known and well-loved verses that the Apostle Paul has spoken, but they are almost never set in the context in which Paul is writing them. Usually, they are either used as a general statement of what love should look like in a marriage for wedding counseling, premarital counseling, in a bad marriage, this is what we need, that's why they're read at marriages, or they're used as an attack by somebody on somebody they don't like because they felt they they haven't been loving and they're like listen remember love is patient love doesn't keep a record of wrongs and while there might be benefit in some of those things the apostle paul's written these things specifically in the context of a church that has been divided over pride and arrogance and self-righteousness and exaltation of gifts and persons in the church, a church that has taken good things from God and has misused them and abused them. Now, let me say this at the outset, because I have very, very often in my Christian life heard people quote 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, if I have all prophecy and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge and have all faith, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. And usually it's an arrow being shot at people that know more than you because they don't like that they know less than you. Well, it's about love. It's not about knowledge. That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying. Paul's not pitting knowledge and love. And generally, when this chapter is preached or taught, there's almost an automatic expectation. It's not about learning things and knowing things from God's word. It's about serving people like the poor. That's interesting because Paul goes on to say, if I give away all my money to the poor, if I, if I give away all my money to the poor, but have not love, I'm nothing. And so it's not love versus gifts. It's not love versus gifts. It's love in the context of the gifts that God gives. It's love undergirding the gifts that God gives. It's not, not gifts, love. And so we've got to set that out at the beginning of this sermon. We've got to say, listen, Paul is not saying love is all you need. And it's not about the gifts. Paul is also not saying that love is a better gift than the other gifts. He's saying it is the grace that must always accompany and drive those gifts. And so we're, we're going to see how Paul will first tell us that religious activity without love is meaningless. Religious activity without love is meaningless. Notice that there in those first 
four verses building on what he's already said. He gives us four categories of religious activity and how that religious activity is empty or useless if it's not driven by love. Notice what Paul says. He says, if I speak in the tongue of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, tongues were the abused gift in Corinth. They were the big gift. Uh, Presumably, I'm of the opinion that they were speaking in foreign languages, that they were not some kind of babble, some kind of gibberish nonsense, um, but that they were actual languages in which if you had someone from Germany and you had never studied German, you could share the gospel with them supernaturally in German, though you had never studied it. Now, when Paul says, if I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, I think that's hyperbole. I think Paul's saying, if I speak with the tongue of men, even if I spoke with the tongue of angels, even as if I could speak an angelic language, if that were possible, but I have not love, I'm nothing. Now, there's a story about tongues. I'll tell this. It's kind of out of place. Jose pointed me to this this week. Uh, D.A. Carson, speaking about how, how much we misunderstand the purpose of tongues in our modern culture, tells a story about how one of his friends had gone to a Pentecostal or charismatic church, and um, they were having a time of tongue speaking and interpretation, and his friend um, stood up and started uh, quoting John chapter 1, verse 1 through 18 in Greek, and knowing that nobody there had studied New Testament Greek, presumably, um, he waited for the interpretations. And there were two interpretations, and they were crazy. He said, I've got a word from the Lord for you. And he quoted John 1 in Greek, and then people tried to interpret what it meant. It was John 1. That's what it meant. <laughs> that was the interpretation. And the point of that is that God had given these tongues in the first century to communicate the gospel to a people that had not heard the gospel. Now, that's a noble thing, isn't it? That's a noble thing to communicate the gospel. It, it could be argued and will be argued that's a loving thing to communicate the gospel to people who have never heard the gospel and a people that are not like us from another nationality or background. And yet Paul is going to tell us that even things that in and of themselves may be good, if they are driven by wrong motives, if they're driven by wrong motives, they are worthless. They are worthless. How many times have we seen people take truth, Calvinistic truth, and use it as a club instead of a scalpel to help people? And use it because I have the truth and you don't and I'm right and you're wrong rather than God is truth. And this is God's truth. And I want you to know the truth and that being carried and driven by love. And so Paul is saying in these four things, tongues, knowledge, then he'll talk about faith and then he'll talk about uh, mercy ministry, as it were. And in all those things, if it is not tempered with love, it is useless. Now, I think this is important for us because I believe that we rarely stop to examine our motives. I I believe we rarely stop to examine our motives. You know, I think about my ministry in light of this a lot. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing that? Am I doing this to be seen? Am I doing this because I just know it's the right thing to do and I should be doing it? Am I doing it out of guilt? Am I being driven because I want to outdo somebody else? You know, that, that's what's in our hearts by nature. That's what's in our hearts by nature. And it's very easy to even do spiritual things and even do religious activity and not to be motivated by the supernatural regenerating love of God in our hearts. Love for him, 
Love for each other. That's what Paul's going to say. Paul's going to say, first of all, the love has to be vertical. All of these activities, and we tend to think of this, don't we, on the human plane. We tend to think, well, he wasn't very loving to her, rather than was his heart seeking first the glory of God out of love for Christ, out of gratitude for God's love for him. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a second, because I think if we miss that, if we, if we read this context this, these verses out of the context of the Bible as a whole, we could very easily think that somehow this just means I have to try harder to be nicer or more caring to people. And that's not what Paul's saying. The love that Paul is talking about that has to be, be undergirding and propelling religious activity is a supernatural grace of God. John sums it up the best, doesn't he? First John, we love him because he first loved us. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so if through this sermon, and I I hope you do, you realize I lack love in my life, you will realize that I'm not calling you and Paul's not calling you to summon up some kind of some kind of diligence and some kind of some kind of power within to change. He's he's summoning you to call on God in humility and say, God, fill my heart with the love of Jesus. Fill my heart with the love of Jesus. Notice. Paul will go on and talk about the gift of prophecy and knowledge. Now, I've already alluded to this. These gifts were fundamental to the life of the church. Prophecy and knowledge are the word of God. They are fundamental to the life of the church. There is no church apart from revelation of God in Christ. There is no church apart from supernatural special revelation, what we have in the Bible. But what Paul's saying is it's possible, and I'll import it into this day, to preach or to spread God's word and not to have a heart of love for him and for those that we're ministering to. You know, I often think about our Lord Jesus, and one of the greatest examples of his ministering in love as a real man, though the God-man, is the rich young ruler. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus, says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's self-righteous. He wants to do. What must I do to get the inheritance? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Nobody's done that. He doesn't get the inheritance. And then Jesus goes through the whole thing with him because that man thought he had done it. That man thought he had loved as he needed to, thought he could bring enough love to the table. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, go away, sell all that you have and give to the poor because that man loved his money. That man's affection was on his money. And what's marvelous about this account is that while the rich man walks away and he doesn't get saved, to the best of our knowledge, the rich man walks away from Jesus. It says that Jesus loved him. Now, I read that the way Paul is is saying this here that Jesus had all knowledge and all prophecy and he ministered that knowledge and that prophecy in love. He ministered his word. He ministered his truth. He ministered as a real man in love, even to a man who rejected it. And I think about how tempted we would be if that happened to us and that man walked away to be like, on him. And yet Jesus, the Bible says, loved him, loved him. Notice, as I've already noted in in verse 3, that Paul does say it's possible, too, to give away all that you have. Think of the rich and ruler. It's actually possible to give away all that you have to the poor and to deliver your body to be burned but not have love. It's possible. How is it possible? How is it possible? I mean, if we saw, if we heard of someone that sold everything that they had 
And they went down to homeless shelters and soup kitchens and they gave everything away. I don't think there's one person that would say that's not a loving person. But Paul says it is possible because it's possible to be driven by self-righteousness. It's possible to be driven by a desire to be a better person so that God will see me as a good person. It's possible in the innermost workings of our hearts and our minds to think this is what other people should be doing. I'm going to be doing this. And that's not love. That's not love. It's not out of love for Christ. Out of gratitude for what he's done. It's not out of love for the betterment of the people that are being ministered to. I think this is a very significant thing for us to take into account. That Paul is saying, whatever religious activity there may be in this life, it can be carried out inappropriately because of wrong motives being driving it forward. And I will say this. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately evil who can know it. And so before you write it off and say, I'm not doing what I'm doing with wrong motives, remember, our hearts are often deceitful, beyond belief, and they need to be tested by the word of God, and they need to be refined through the gospel and purified through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that brings us then, secondly, to Paul's definition of love. And this is the great definition you'll all know there in verses 4 to 7. Now, Paul, when he comes to define love, and it's important that he does define it, he does it two ways. First, he defines it positively, what it is. Then he defines it negatively, and then he ends it on a positive note. He gives some positive characteristics, negative characteristics, positive characteristics. Let me say this. I think that's important because we live in a day when people don't want anything negative. Don't tell me anything negative. Don't tell me what you're against. Don't tell me any of this. We just need to get along. That's loving. Paul's going to tell us, oh, no, no. Love is, a, a, is not like a whole lot of things. There's a whole lot of things that love's not. And we need to know what Christian love is. We need to be able to define biblical love instead of putting our definition on it. You know, I do believe in our day when we say, I need to be more loving or he needs to be more loving, what we mean is, why can't we all just get along and just let, live and let live? That's what we mean. Why would he be worried about him over here? We should just live and let live. That's not love. That's not love. Jonathan Edwards in Charity and Its Fruits will actually say the highest form and the highest expression of love is for the spiritual well-being of others. And that would even include gentle and loving rebukes, corrections, bringing of God's word, instruction. Those are the things the world doesn't want. Those are the things the world will put not loving on. They will put the stamp of not loving on gentle rebukes, corrections from God's word, spiritual care, and yet Edwards is going to say it's the highest act of love to care for someone spiritually. It's the greatest thing you could do is to care for the spiritual well-being of someone's soul. It's the greatest, it's the greatest of all the things that God calls us to as believers. And notice, so when Paul defines this, first he does it positively. He says, love is patient, love is kind, And then positively at the end, love bears all things. It rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Now, I know if I put a blank in here and I say, Nick is patient and kind. Nick does not envy or boast. Nick is not arrogant or rude. Nick does not insist on his own way. Nick does not ever rejoice at wrongdoing. Nick bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I fail. And I know that you fail if you put your name in there. I know that you fail. 
you would be perfect if you could put your name in there and say, I don't do that. And then I think what we have to do is put somebody else's name in there. Jesus' name. And when we put Jesus' name in here, and we think of our Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry, Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus did not envy or boast. Jesus was not arrogant or rude. Jesus did not insist on his own way, did not get irritated. Think about how many times Jesus could have gotten irritated with the disciples. I mean, they were getting irritated with each other. Think how quick Jesus could have been like, I'm done with you guys, give me 12 more. (laughs) There's got to be 12 better guys than these guys. I do not want to hang out. I mean, there were, I'm sure there were times that the disciples did not want to hang out with each other. I am certain of that. And yet Jesus never got irritated. He never boasted. Even when he did the great works that, that brought men to saving faith in him, he never showed off. Remember when, when the devil wanted him to throw himself off of the temple? And he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't in arrogance throw himself off and show who he was. He wouldn't take to himself anything because Jesus Christ loved his father perfectly. And he loved those who were in the world that he came to save. And so it's right that we read. It's right that we read verses 4 through 7 first and foremost about our Lord Jesus. It's right that we see that we have all failed. We have all fallen short. We have all come short of the glory of God. We have all walked in lawlessness and lovelessness. And frankly, the Bible says... Lawlessness is lovelessness and lovelessness is lawlessness. That the heart of keeping God's commandments and obeying God and blessing men is is love. That love fulfills the law and that when we disobey God, we are acting in, in, in hatred. You know, I think about this a lot when we think about interactions with others. If, if, if a child in here was called to obey their mom or dad and they did it begrudgingly, and they didn't do it joyfully, and they didn't do it thankful for all the privileges they had, that would not be a loving act of obedience. They would not actually be fulfilling the command their parent had given them. That love drives everything. That all of God's commandments to others. Um, You know, I've often thought about men lusting after women. And if if men loved the woman that they were lusting after with Christian love, they would wish them spiritual good rather than seeing them as an object to be lusted after. They would pray for their salvation. They would want them to know Christ rather than lusting after them. You can do that down the line with all the commandments. And then think about your homes. Think about your marriages. Think about the ways that husbands and wives exhibit this. This comes out, I think, most fully in the home. Notice the negatives. Verse 5, love does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. Think about that in your marriages. Love is not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. How our marriages would be transformed if love was operative in all that we did. Wanting the best for our husbands and our wives. Not, not reminding them how many times they failed. Not throwing back in their faces all that you never change. You do this all the time. Throwing back instead of saying, you know what? You are in Christ. And the gospel is transforming you. And I love you. And I'm praying for you. And let's pray together. And you see how love in every sphere of life, the love as it's characterized here, is always operative. I want to say this, that... 
One thing that I think we need to take very seriously in our day as we look at a definition of love is verse 6. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. I think this is the hammer that breaks apart the rock-like fortress of postmodernism, where we're told, that's so arrogant for you to say you have the truth. That's so arrogant for you to think that that person's going to go to hell. No, it's not arrogant. It's loving. It's loving to believe the truth of God's word. God defines what love is. It's loving to believe God. It's, it's hateful not to believe God. It's loving to want others to know the truth and be delivered by the truth and to have their hearts changed from the truth and to know the truth and be set free. It's unloving to want them to continue and to perish eternally. And so I think we need a whole new appropriation of what love is, a whole new appropriation of what does it mean to be loving. What does it mean to be gentle? What does it mean to be patient? What does it mean to be kind? What does it mean to be compassionate biblically? And again, I think we come back to the Lord Jesus. If you want to know what the measure of a man is, a loving man, you look at Christ. You know what? There's this great quote. I have to read this to you. H.A. Boardman, he was a pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia um, long over 100 years ago, and he said this. He said, adoption, humanly, adoption, is the highest proof of love one can bestow upon another, except dying for him. Adoption, adopting somebody in your family, is the highest proof or demonstration of love that one human being can show to another, except to die for him. Christ has done both of that for us. He's adopted us. He shed his blood for us. He's justified us. He poured out his life unto death. He loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. He loved his father. He did everything perfectly. He rejoiced in the truth. He didn't rejoice in evil. He did all of that for your salvation. And so here's the key. Here's the key. When you know that there's a lack of love in your life, you look in faith to Jesus Christ. And you look to him as a savior for forgiveness and deliverance from lovelessness and lawlessness. And then you look to him as the example. And you know, as hokey as it is, the WWJD bracelet, don't ever wear one to church. There is a legitimacy in saying, how did Jesus live? What did Jesus do? How did his life demonstrate all of the attributes of love and all of the particulars? You know, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, and it was loving for him to do so. Jesus was patient and kind with his bickering disciples, and it was loving for him to do so. In every situation, Jesus was operating and being motivated by heavenly love for his people. Now, the apostle is going to do something interesting here in verse 8. He's going to tell us love never ends, and then the rest of the chapter he's going to talk about all of these gifts that did pass away, that did have a time period, knowledge, prophecy, tongues, and he's going to use those three things to say they were operative in the New Testament church for a short period of time and that they were necessary for that time, but that the greater thing that ought to be operative in the life of Christians are the graces that God gives faith, hope, and love. He's going to contrast supernatural revelatory gifts, tongue, knowledge, prophecy with faith, hope, and love. He's going to say these three will pass away. They're still operative when he's writing this. They're going to come to an end, but these three are going to continue. And then he's going to say, But faith and hope are going to come to an end, and love is going to endure forever. What is Paul doing? Paul is telling us, very simply, what Jonathan Edwards called his last chapter in Charity and Its Fruits. 
Heaven is a world of love. Heaven is a world of love. Let me read this to you. This is marvelous. Listen to the way Edwards puts this. Christ loves all his saints in heaven. His love flows out to his whole church there, to every individual member of it. They all with one heart and one soul unite in love to their common redeemer. Every heart is wedded to this holy and spiritual husband. All rejoice in him while the angels join them in their love. The angels and saints all love each other. All the members of the glorious society of heaven are sincerely united. There's not a single secret or an open enemy among all of them. Think of that. There's not a single secret or an open enemy among all of them in heaven. Not a heart is there that is not full of love. Not a solitary inhabitant that is not beloved by all others. And as all are lovely, so all see each other's loveliness with full complacence and delight. Every soul goes out in love to each other. And among all the blessed inhabitants, love is mutual and full and eternal. You see what Edwards is saying is that after this world is gone and after all the joys and the pleasures and the activities and the turmoil and the misery and the strife and the fighting and all of the experiences of life are gone and after all of the gifts and the powers and the supernatural things in the church and after all is done, heaven will be a world of infinite and eternal love and delight in God and one another. And so we should be seeking that now. We should be seeking that now. Now, I, beloved, I fail at this miserably. That is not lip service. We fail miserably. And so I'd leave you with a few questions. When you look at your own heart and you see lovelessness, do you confess that sin to the Lord? Are you a person who's confessing sin to the Lord? Are you saying, oh God, I have not loved you and I have not loved this individual. I have not loved my wife. I have not loved my children. I have not loved this person in the church. I have not loved this neighbor. I have not loved my enemy. Jesus calls us to love our enemies in that biblical Christian love. Are you in a habit of confessing sin of lovelessness to the Lord? Are you in a habit of praying that God would make you a biblically loving person? Are you praying, God, it's not enough that I have a lot of knowledge and can tell other people what it is? Is that driven by undergirded and shrouded with love? It's not enough to say, I really want to help all these needy people in society. And you know what? Other Christians aren't doing that, and I want to do that. My question would be, is that driven by biblical, gospel-centered, god driven, God-like love for the poor and the needy. While there's much here to convict us, it's also an encouraging chapter, and I want to encourage you. If you're in Christ, you have had your heart of hatred turned to love. You, if you're a believer, it can rightly be said of you that you have real love within you. Christ has communicated his love by his spirit to you. And though there's different levels and there's mixture, if you are in Jesus, you are a creature that has been redeemed to love and you have been enabled and empowered to love. And so it's encouraging that you have a source of love in Jesus Christ. You have, a, you have an infinite source of love in the Lord Jesus. Jesus says, my love I give to you. My love I give to you. Abide in my love. 
You know what? I'm going to say this finally. If we do love, it's going to be one of the most powerful witnesses to the watching world. Because remember, our Lord Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. You know, I think about the visible church. So much conflict and turmoil. When there are members of a visible church who speak ill of one another, despise one another, are impatient with one another, are unkind to one another, there's no evidence that that those people belong to Christ. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. I exhort all of us together to take this seriously, to take what we've heard, to cherish it, to pray through it, to confess our lovelessness, to cry out for more, and to walk, to walk as those who have been redeemed by the infinitely loving Lord Jesus Christ. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father, we, we are humbled by your word because we know that there is so much So much in our hearts that is not truly loving and is not uh, that divine love that comes from you through your son, Jesus Christ, operative in our lives. And so we lift up our voices together and we pray that you would make us sincerely loving, that you would remove from us all pretense and self-righteousness, all pride, that inner desire to uh, prove a point by religious activities We pray, Father, that you would make us sincere, that you would fix our eyes on Jesus Christ crucified to see that greater love of which none other has ever been demonstrated, that a man give his life for his friends. Father, we thank you that we have been adopted into your family through the love of your son and through your love. We thank you that you have demonstrated your love to us by sending your son to die for us. Father, remind us, remind us of the source of, our, of that love today in the Lord Jesus. We pray that our fellowship would be full of loving care and words and speech and actions as we fellowship and continue worshiping. We pray that you would meet with us and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.